Welcome to our Women's Bible Study. My name is Stephanie Schwartz, and I'm the Director of Women's Ministry at Compass Bible Church, and we're studying the books of First and Second Thessalonians together. Uh, today, we're looking at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, and I want to begin by asking you a question. Uh, have you ever heard of eBay before? I'm sure you have. I've actually, or I am, a longtime eBay user. I've been using eBay for about 20 years now. And, you know, when I started using eBay, it wasn't such a great experience. So it's kind of a surprise that I'm still using it. But when we started, uh, my husband and I, we thought, you know, we're going to get all these great deals on eBay. So we went to buy a Vespa. If you know what a Vespa is, it's a scooter, and they're pretty expensive, but we thought maybe we can get a good deal on a Vespa through eBay. So we found this listing for this amazing looking Vespa. I mean, it was like brand new looking, just pristine condition, and it was an outstanding price, less than half price. So we contacted the seller, you know, to ask questions, let them know we were interested in the Vespa. And uh, the seller responded back, this really nice guy. He said he was a family man. He bought the Vespa for his daughter who was in college and she wasn't using it. She didn't want to use it anymore. So they were ready to part with it. Uh, the only problem was, is that we live in California and he lived in Italy. But he assured us he had a friend who was in the shipping business and he would even ship it to us for free. We were so excited. I mean, this was again at a great looking Vespa at an outstanding price. Uh, we talked to him. He let us know that he was just, again, this family man. He was using phrases like, oh, God bless you. I mean, what a great guy. You know, someone that you just want to hang out with after the transaction's done. So, you know, he let us know that to save money, we could go outside of eBay. We didn't have to do this in eBay. We could save on eBay fees if we just Western Union him the money. And if we Western Union him the money, then we wouldn't have to pay the extra cost. So we thought, oh, that's great. He's even trying to save us money. My husband went down to Western Union and sent $2,400 to this guy. And he let us know that the second he got the money, he was going to ship that Vespa to us and give us the tracking information. We sent the money. The next day came and we heard nothing. No tracking information. We started calling him and calling him and calling him, and he was gone. There was nobody there. He didn't respond. We never heard from him again. We realized that we'd been deceived. We contacted Western Union, and they said, hey, when you Western Union, it's the same as sending cash. And you know what? You didn't send your money to Italy. You sent your money to somewhere in Eastern Europe. And then we contacted eBay, and eBay said there's nothing we can do for you because you went outside of the eBay system. They said that, you know, they've got all these rules. And if we had followed the rules, we would have been fine. But we didn't read the rules. We didn't know the rules. We didn't follow the rules. And we ended up deceived. And we lost $2,400 as a result. Well, you know, it can feel really junky. It can feel awful to be deceived, to have somebody lie to you or trick you. 
But, you know, what if the deception uh, has eternal significance? I mean, what if the deception in your thinking or in your behavior or even in the way you view and relate to God might have eternal significance? I mean, that would be huge, right? Well, that's exactly what our text today talks about. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, let's read that together. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you haven't done so already, and let's read together from verse 1 all the way through to verse 12 and kind of note this theme of deception as we're reading through these verses. In verse 1, it begins, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Wow, that's a pretty heavy text, right? I mean, that is a loaded text. And before we really start to explore the text, we need to go back just a couple steps and remember to whom this was written. It was written to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, this was a church that Paul, the Apostle Paul, founded. Uh, he went to Thessalonica. He went into the Jewish synagogue there, and he began to preach to people that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he was crucified, and he rose from the dead. And some there, they believed but many didn't believe. And not only did they not believe, they persecuted Paul. They wanted him out of town. They did not want this message of Jesus being the Lord and Savior of the world uh, going forward. So they ran him out of town. And yet this young group of believers remained there in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul was only there for maybe a month, three months, six months at the max. But uh, this young church stayed there in a place, in a culture, in a city where they were despised, uh, hated, ridiculed. Uh, they were persecuted. They were suffering. Uh, 
Now, scholars will say that uh, between the time of writing 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, which was only a few months later, the persecution, the suffering had probably ramped up even more. And the persecution, the suffering had gotten so bad that the Thessalonians began to believe that maybe they were actually in the day of the Lord. I mean, maybe they had missed the rapture of the church and they were suffering during the tribulation period because why were they suffering so greatly? Why had their suffering increased rather than lessening? And that's what Paul addresses in the first two verses of 2 Thessalonians 2, which we just read. He says to them, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see, what's going on here is they believe that they may have missed the rapture, that they may have been in the day of the Lord. We see that again, if you look at verse one, it says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. You remember that gathering together to him that we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses 13 through 18, where The Apostle Paul told them not to grieve the way that other people grieve because one day we would all be gathered together with Jesus in the clouds. We would meet him in the air. And then after that, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 12, Paul went on to immediately teach them after this rapture takes place, this great day of the Lord, this tribulation will break out on the planet. Now they were suffering And the text says in verse 2 here of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that they may have received a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from Paul and Silas and his companions, saying that the day of the Lord had come. So back then with the Spirit, they would have people prophesy in these churches. They were New Testament churches that were uh, doing church without a New Testament. So they did have prophets in the churches. They had people who were teachers, maybe the spoken word. But many believe that they may have received a forged letter that was forged that said it came in Paul's name. And that letter said, you guys missed the rapture. And the reason that you're suffering is because you are now in the day of the Lord. It's interesting because in the end of 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 3, verses 17, uh, Paul says, I, Paul, write this letter with my own hand. His way of saying, hey, don't miss this. I'm signing this with my own hand. This is a letter that I have written and not a forged one. So uh, Paul says here that you are not to be, in verse 2, quickly shaken in mind. They were shaken. Shaken in mind. Uh, That word there, shaken, is the same word that describes an earthquake in Acts chapter 16. I mean, you guys know what it's 
what it's like to be in an earthquake, right? We live here in California. When you're in an earthquake and the ground is shaken, you're, you're reeling. You feel tottered. Your adrenaline is rushing. You feel like you're out of balance. And Paul is saying here that they were shaken in mind. Uh, one translator said, shaken out of their wits is really what it was. They were scared. I mean, can you imagine thinking that you had missed the rapture and you were in the day of the Lord if Paul had taught you that because you were in Christ, you would be raptured before that great day? They thought, you know, how could this be happening? I thought we weren't going to be here. Have we missed Jesus' return in the clouds for us? And then Paul responds to them in verses three and four saying, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So we see uh, two things here. Paul's saying to them in the text, don't be deceived because that day will not come. You will not uh, be in that day. That day won't be here unless the rebellion comes first. This great apostasy, this falling away, this rejection of Christ by many people, and then the man of lawlessness being revealed. Uh, Until those two things are happening, you can be assured that you're not in the day of the Lord because these two things will happen during the day of the Lord. Uh, Looking back at 1 Thessalonians 2-3, that first exhortation there that Paul gives them, he tells them, let no one deceive you in any way. Don't be deceived, he says. Uh, The word translated deceived there is the Greek verb ex apatao. Uh, Apatao means deceived and this prefix ex kind of heightens it more. Don't let anyone deceive you. Now, the first point is we got to admit that we can be deceived. I mean, just like the Thessalonians had the potential to be deceived, so do we. We have to admit that we can be deceived. You know, deception goes way back to the beginning, to the very beginning of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, when our great, 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 great grandmother Eve was deceived. Uh, It might be worth it for you to turn to Genesis 3, We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to add on verses 11 through 13 and just see this deception that took place. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? So do you see what Satan's doing right there? He's causing her to question God's word. He's causing her to wonder, you know, is this really what God said? He's trying to deceive her, right? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent, no, he was there to deceive her, right? In verse four, he said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he told her, hey, God's lying to you. God's tricking you. God's holding out on you. You need to listen to what I say. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Well, they were separated from God. They sinned. They had broken God's law. And because of that, they realized for the first time that they were naked. And that naked represents the fact that they are now guilty before a holy of holy God. So they went and they hid themselves from God. And God was looking for them in a sense. And they said they had hidden because they were naked. Verse 11 picks it up. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Uh, She was deceived. She was tricked. She was lied to and she believed it. And it had significant consequences. You know, we see the same thing in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, you might want to look that up or jot it down. Uh, Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, he says the same thing. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Uh, That's a strong warning. It's something where we really have to think, how does this apply to me right now? I mean, just stop and think for a second, even, you know, jot it down or, or make a note to yourself. In what area of your thinking right now might you be deceived? Uh, a lot of times when we're suffering, we're prone to being deceived because the pain in our life can cause us to think wrongly. Uh, we saw that with the Thessalonians, right? They were suffering, and they thought, well, maybe we missed the rapture. Add to that, that uh, prophecy or spoken word or forged letter, and they were duped. They were uh, beginning to think wrongly, even though Paul had taught them differently. You know, there's things that we can think about God or wrongly think about God when we're we're suffering. There's ways that we might be deceived. Uh, one way that we can be deceived is our minds can begin to think that God might not be good or God might not be loving. I mean, when we see pain and suffering and hardship, we just think, you know, maybe I'm more loving than God. I mean, I hate to say it, but I seem feel like I would do things much better than this. Maybe I'm more good than God. Uh, maybe I would, you know, be so much more gracious or so much more kind or make things so much more pain-free. When we think that, we got to realize that that's deceptive thoughts. It's not true thoughts. First uh, John 4, 8, for example, says that God is love. God is love. And it's important for us to remember that the only reason we know love we can experience love, we know goodness, we can experience goodness is because we've been created in the image of God, right? Uh, 
He is our source, our great source of all love and all goodness. And we're just a small recipient of that, being his image bearer, as Genesis 1.27 says. We are his image bearers, and he is the source of goodness and of love. It's like uh, sometimes when you get a water bottle, it'll say bottled at the source. You know, when you realize that that water bottle didn't go through a lot of processing or, you know, so you're led to believe, not a lot of pipes, but it was taken right from this, you know, source of water, this uh, flowing stream, whatever it is that they collected that bottle of water from. Now, if we were to take that bottle of water and maybe set it on a rock by the stream and bring a, a child over and say, you know, do you think that the bottle of water came from the stream? Or do you think the whole stream was poured out from the bottle of water? Most of them would say the bottle of water came from the stream, right? And that's the same thing with us. We sense goodness and we sense love because we have been created in the image of God. He gives us a taste of what it means to be his image, his reflection of him. And it would be absurd for us to think that we were more advanced in our ability to be good or to love than God was. It would be just as absurd to say that that whole stream came from the bottle of water. Does that make sense? I mean, even though we might feel like it, it does not work logically. We know good and we know love because we've been created in God's image. We often think, well, then maybe God's just not in control. I mean, maybe he's not sovereign. Maybe he can't do whatever he wants to do. There's a great passage in Job chapter 42, verse 2. And I like the fact that it's in Job because Job suffered so much. I mean, so many tragic things came upon Job. And at the end of the book, when God revealed himself to Job, uh, Job said concerning God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, No purpose of God's can be derailed or blocked or kept from happening because God is in control and he has the ability to do all things. And we need to remind ourselves of that when we're deceived into thinking that, you know, maybe God is just not in control or he's not sovereign. Sometimes we can get so discouraged, especially when we're suffering, we think, well, maybe God just doesn't have the ability to forgive someone like me. Uh, Maybe I've been so bad or done things that are so wrong that God looks at me and just says, unredeemable. I, I, I can't do anything with you. I can't help you because I know how bad you've been, how bad your thoughts have been, how bad your actions have been. I know all the terrible things that you've done, but that's not true. That's just not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, There's a passage in John chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus is there on the cross. And it says that Jesus said, it is finished. It's finished. You know what that means? He accomplished what he was doing there on the cross. It means that it was complete. It means that the sins that he was atoning for before a holy God were paid off. Now, if Jesus couldn't pay off your sin, if you turned to God in repentance and faith and God could not redeem you, that would mean that Jesus would still be on the cross. 
It means that he didn't finish his work. It wasn't accomplished. It wasn't complete. He wouldn't have risen from the dead. He would still be needing to deal with what your sins had earned, and that makes no sense. And as we start thinking through these things, you can think, well, yeah, it's just, it's easy to get deceived. I mean, how do I keep myself from being deceived? And we see that in our text. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, Paul kind of gives them the remedy here. He says to them, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So he's saying, you should remember this stuff. I already told you this stuff. You guys already know these things. They were given God's truth through the Apostle Paul. And you know, in the same way, we're given God's truth through the scriptures. So the second point here is subject your thoughts to the scripture. I mean, they were given God's truth through the Apostle Paul. We've been given God's truth through the scriptures. They needed to remember what they had already learned. We need to do the same thing. When we have these thoughts that are deceptive thoughts or thoughts trying to get us off track, we need to take them and subject them to the things that we already know, the things that we've already learned. I know you guys already know these things, right? You know that God is love. You know that God's plans can't be thwarted. You know that Jesus said, it is finished. And yet there will be times that we feel like, wow, would a good and loving God really allow this? Or is God really in control? Or, wow, is he ready to forgive me again of this? We need to remember. We need to remember what the scripture teaches We need to remember the things we've already been taught. And the Thessalonians needed to remember what they had been taught concerning the day of the Lord, because that's what they were deceived about, that they had missed the rapture and they were in the day of the Lord. So let's look at uh, verses five through eight. It says, Paul saying to them, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. That and you know, they remembered, they had learned this stuff. So concerning the day of the Lord, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, they had already been taught this stuff again, and they needed to take the lies that they had heard and subject them to this truth that they had been taught. They had been taught that this man of lawlessness would be present in the tribulation time, that he was the son of destruction. Both of those are referred to in verse four. Uh, Verse eight says he is the lawless one. And you may have heard these terms used before. They refer to someone coming known as the Antichrist. Uh, They would have known they were in the day of the Lord if the Antichrist was there. The Antichrist was not there. They were not in the day of the Lord. Uh, The word Antichrist is interesting. Anti can either mean against or opposed to, or instead of, or in the place of. And Christ is just the Greek way of saying Messiah. 
So somebody who's against the Messiah or who tries to put themselves in the place of the Messiah. Remember in verse 4, it says that he will proclaim himself to be God. He will try to say that he is the one that replaces God. Now, it's interesting if you look back at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, this is a controversial statement here, and scholars have spilled a lot of ink on this little passage. I mean, I think there were about 11 solid views that I found concerning what that is, who that restrainer is. But I think if we think about it, uh, I think that we might be able to make a, a good conclusion there. I mean, who would have the ability to restrain Satan or restrain evil? Uh, think about that in your mind. Who would be strong enough to restrain Satan or restrain evil? And who at one point in the future is going to be taken away? Who have we learned will be taken away? Well, we know that the church will be taken away when they meet Christ together in the clouds in the air. And we know that the Holy Spirit indwells the church. So, in his unique relationship with the church, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way, in a sense, when the church is raptured off the planet. And the Holy Spirit is the only one with the strength and the ability to restrain Satan himself. So when the Holy Spirit is taken, off the, taken out of the, the planet with the church in the rapture, not that the Holy Spirit still won't be here, but in his unique relationship to the church, this restraint that the Holy Spirit has through the church will be lifted. And at that time, the Antichrist will be able to be revealed. Uh, the text also says in verse 4 that he takes his seat in the temple of God. And we might think, but there is no Jewish temple anymore. Well, you know, a lot of scholars believe that the temple will be rebuilt during the tribulation period. Uh, it doesn't need to be rebuilt now, but during the tribulation period, the temple will be rebuilt. And there's also keys to that in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it's talking about this coming Antichrist. It says that he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. Uh, the Antichrist is going to make this covenant, this agreement. He's going to be this religious and political leader who makes an agreement with Israel for a week or a seven-year period. And it says, and for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So he will stop the temple sacrifice and offerings that are taking place for half the week or three and a half years. So we see that uh, there is something coming with the temple and this uh, antichrist relationship to the people of Israel and what he will do in putting himself or establishing himself as, you know, this one who sits in the temple and stops the offering and the sacrifice. Now, what's great news is that in verse 8, it says, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord 
Jesus, will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Uh, That's comforting. We can see that even though there's this crazy time coming on the planet uh, during this great tribulation period, that ultimately Jesus will have victory over him. And it won't be hard for Jesus either. He will kill him with the breath of his mouth. He doesn't need to put any energy or effort into this at all. He is in control and he will bring this to a close in his timing. So, you know, thinking about this, thinking about these things concerning the Antichrist, there's a few things that we can pick up from this, and that is that the scripture teaches that there is a coming Antichrist. Uh, It reveals to us that God will triumph over all evil and make things right. And it reminds us that even as we watch the world set the stage for this coming leader for this coming Antichrist, we can be encouraged knowing that this is according to God's eschatological timetable, and he ultimately is in control. Now, there's a lot we could say about the Antichrist, but we're not going to for the sake of time. Uh, There's a couple good books that I read on the Antichrist that I would recommend to you if you want to study a little bit more. Uh, The first one is called Who is the Antichrist by Mark Hitchcock. And the next one is Unmasking the Antichrist by Ron Rhodes. Uh, Both of those were great. And, you know, if you want to study more, pick one of those up and just read about this coming leader who is going to deceive Israel and be here during this time that we will be taken out of the planet. And the great thing is, is it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to figure out who it is because we're not going to be here. We're not even going to know who it is. So we shouldn't spend a lot of our time and energy trying to mark this person out. We just know that he's against Christ. He's opposed to Christ. He tries to put himself in the position of Christ, and we won't be here when he's revealed. They knew that. We know things about God. We know that no matter what happens, God's word stands. It is true. There's a great passage in Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And when we have thoughts, when we're tempted to be deceived, when we have ideas that contradict what we've learned in the word of God, what the word of God says, we need to make a choice. And we need to subject our thinking to God's word, to the scripture. You know, that word subject, it can mean force is involved. And sometimes we need to force ourselves. We need to just say, I'm going to force myself to believe what God says rather than what my emotions or feelings are driving me. Because we know that it's God's word that is forever fixed and not my thoughts, and not my emotions. So we need to make sure that we're subjecting our thoughts to God's word. We need to read the Bible. We need to be memorizing it. We need to trust in it. And we need to live consistently with what it teaches. Because, you know, this text says in verses 9 through 12, the text says for those who refuse to do that, the loss that they will incur may be much higher than they even realize. 
Let's look real quick at verses 9 through 12. 9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So he's doing some things that are to deceive. False signs and wonders. They are real signs and wonders, but they're false. They're deceptive. And with all wicked deception. Now look, for those who are perishing. Why? Why are they perishing? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. People perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And then look at verse 11 and 12. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. But what did they do instead? They had pleasure in unrighteousness. Uh, there's a commentator, Gene Green. He wrote the Pillar Commentary series on First and Second Thessalonians. It's called Letters to the Thessalonians. Uh, he makes a strong statement here. He says, since they did not receive the truth of the gospel, God sends them confusion so that they cannot distinguish between the truth and the lie. And in the end, they believe the lie as if it were the truth. That's scary. That's a strong warning there. I mean, that's uh, got a sense of urgency with it, right? Like, we don't want to put this off. Uh, we don't want to be found rejecting God and loving unrighteousness, rejecting the truth and loving unrighteousness. And they do reject the truth because they love their wrongdoing. Uh, so often people will reject God and they'll say, oh, I don't know if there's really a God or, you know, I don't know X, Y, and Z. But often that's not the problem. I'd say even usually that's not the problem. The problem is, is that they don't want to give up their unrighteousness. I mean, a lot of times we can say that most humans will admit that there's a God. They recognize that they're sinners, that they have failed before a holy God. Well, why don't they repent? Because they don't want to give up their unrighteousness. They love their sin more than they love God. And that's what's keeping them from being saved. So the third and final point here is turn from sin today. Turn from sin today. As Christians, we just no longer love sin. Our relationship to sin has changed. Uh, when we were saved, God rewired us from the inside out, and we just don't love sin the way we used to. We see that in 1 John 3, verses 7 through 10. And it's interesting because listen to the way uh, John begins this statement in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. So this is something that people can be deceived about. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then he goes on, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it's evident, it's clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So when we become Christians, our relationship to sin changes. Uh, we don't love it the same way anymore. We don't practice it the same way anymore. And you might be thinking right now, well, 
I'm confused because I am a Christian. I know I'm a Christian, but I find myself doing things that I shouldn't do. Or I am a Christian. I know I'm a Christian, but I find myself not doing things that I know I should do. Well, it's interesting in that same text, that same book in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, uh, John writes, my little children, so to Christians, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's telling us if you do sin, if you are doing things you shouldn't do, or if you're not doing the things you should do, the solution is you go to Jesus. He's your advocate and you repent. You turn from your sin and you go back and you just put your confidence back in him. Because if we don't, if we remain in that place where we continue to do things that we know we shouldn't do or not do the things that we know we should be doing, we're going to lose our assurance. We're going to wonder if we're even saved. We're going to lose our joy and we're going to be way less effective than what we could potentially be if we were continually turning to Christ, confessing our sins, expecting him and trusting in him to forgive us. And if Satan can't have us, if he can't snatch us from God, well, at least he will be successful if he can keep us benched, right? And that's what he wants to do. He wants to keep us from turning from our sin. And again, turning from it today, there's that sense of urgency there in the text because none of us can afford to be deceived. There's that passage in the end of Matthew uh, 7. Matthew 7, uh, Jesus says, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And deceived people will come to him. In verse 22, on that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I mean, we did all these things. We had all these works. And he will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You never came to me in repentance and faith. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All those works that you did, thinking that you would be good enough for me, they're not sufficient. Nobody can work their way to a holy God. And if you talk to many people today and you ask them, are you going to heaven? They'll say, yeah. And then you say, why? And they'll say, because I'm a good person. Well, they're deceived. Uh, Jesus says, if they stand before Jesus and say, I was a good person, Jesus will say, you're a worker of lawlessness. Depart from me. That's not God's will for their life. It's that they repent and put their trust in Christ. There's a lot that we can all be concerned about right now. And yet there's this sense of urgency in our text. In the end, there's only one thing that will really matter. And I know that you all know what that is. That is that we get our lives right with Christ and we help others to do so. Let me close in prayer real quick. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to look at this ancient text, 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 12. God, I pray that you would help us all to admit that we have the potential to be deceived. 
I pray, God, that we would combat that potential by taking our thoughts and subjecting them to the scripture, subjecting them to your word. And I pray, God, that if any of us are doing things we shouldn't do or not doing the things we should do, that you would help us to turn from that sin and you'd help us to turn from it today. That we would see uh, this text is delivering a sense of urgency to us, that the time is coming when you will harden the hearts of those who continue to reject you, those who love unrighteousness. And God, we want to make sure that we are clean before you and helping others to get saved. We thank you so much for Jesus. Without him, we would have no hope. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Make sure and tune in with your Zoom group this week so you can uh, discuss the lesson and the message and, you know, just converse about the things that we've talked about.